Good morning, everybody. My name is Drew. I'm the pastor here at Hope uh, Heights. Thrilled that you're here with us. Um, I saw today's a Heights Bakery Day, so there are uh, some Heights Bakery treats out there. So you can continue this conversation, hopefully, after. Don't just jet out of here, but stay and connect. Uh, it, is a, it is very important to us. It's not just for fun, but it's very important that we connect. I'm glad you're here. I have a quick, it is October, and so it's, um, I just saw a list. Someone posted one of those lists of like how every day is like a special day. You know, it's like butterscotch ice cream day is today. And they posted all the things that are October, and one of the things that's October is Emergency Preparedness Month. Did everyone know that? Yeah! So if you've been here for at least a year, I guess, uh, every October we take a moment just to remind you of, uh, of our emergency preparedness. Uh, and so welcome to your annual uh, Hope Heights Family Emergency Preparedness Reminder. Uh, just a couple quick things so you're uh, aware of them. Uh, if you're on any teams, like a kids team or a hospitality team, um, you're, if you're helping out worship team, uh, we maybe have a few more things that we talk through with you, but just as a whole church to know, we do have a plan uh, for different types of emergencies that happen on a Sunday morning. Um, and so the key things for all of us to know, first of all, stay calm. This is my favorite one because if something, <laughs> if like the power went out and there was a tornado, I would just yell, stay calm a lot. And then you all would need to stay calm. Uh, <laughs> but first, it just they take a breath. We do have a plan. Uh, and so the second thing to know is you can listen for instructions. In fact, our music stands up for you. You can't see it from where you are. We actually have taped on there a um, more detailed plan of each scenario and what to say. So we can just, in the moment, I can stay calm or our worship leader can stay calm or whoever is up here can stay calm and just read to you, uh, you know, whatever this is. There's a tornado. And so here's what we need you to do. Generally, actually, in most situations, we just encourage you to go somewhere and stay calm. And so let's say, for instance, there was um, a fire in the building. We would say, hey, we're all meeting outside. That's our plan is to meet outside in the parking lot. Uh, and so we'd say, hey, a fire alarm is going off. Let's meet outside. Stay calm. Let's meet outside in the parking lot. And then we'd all get up and go. Uh, also, to be aware that there's a lot of kids here. And so we have a plan for the kids. The kids probably will already be wherever we're going before we get there. And so you don't need to run and get your kids. Uh, our kids team and hospitality and other people are, are, have already, already know that they go and help get kids and carry kids uh, wherever we need to go. They go there first. And lastly, just for um, it's helpful in any community, but in ours on Sunday morning, if you see something, say something. So if something feels off um, or you're concerned or smoke's coming out from under a door, uh, say something. And so don't assume someone else has said it, but say something. That's just a great way to keep safe um, here on Sunday morning. So you have officially had your annual emergency preparedness reminder. I'll check that off in your file and you, uh, we can move on. But uh, know that we have plans, and if you have any questions, please ask us, or if you're curious what our plans are, love to share those with you. All right. Um, I do love weddings. Um, I get a unique perspective at a wedding uh, because I, at uh, probably more than less weddings, I get to be uh, up there with the people, uh, with the bride and groom. I get to stand up there, which means I get to see their faces. I get to see the tears. Um, one of my favorite uh, moments, I think I've shared this before, is watching uh, a groom watch his bride walk down. He's even like the toughest guy. It's so sweet to see tears and uh, like nervousness and like just overwhelmed. And uh, years ago, I was doing a wedding 
and he kept wanting to talk to me. I think he didn't know what to do because he was nervous. <laughs> and she's walking down the aisle to him, and he was like, this is crazy, isn't it? I can't believe this is happening. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you should just watch her. Don't look at me. <laughs> uh, but just that overwhelmed, I, I love that that happens at a wedding. Um, it, it's, it's really, really sweet. And in fact, a wedding that leads into, right, the beginning of a marriage. Uh, a long time ago, I was sitting in a room of high school students doing youth ministry, and I was with a gentleman who had been married many years, uh, probably in the 40s of years, 40, 50 years. Um, and he was sharing, everyone was sharing what they're going to do that weekend. So we're just sharing kind of what we're doing, how we can pray for each other. Uh, so it was a, a lot of high school guys, and then me and my friend, and he said, oh, I'm going shopping. My wife asked me to go shopping with her. And they said, oh. And before he could say anything else, the high school guys all had all this great advice for how he could get out of shopping with his wife. Uh, they're like, we could make something up that we have like a crisis and you have to minister to us or, we, or just tell her you have to work or just whine about it or fake that you're, some, this happens. Or you could always just sit in your car and listen to music. Um, they had always like, they went quickly to how could he get out of shopping with his wife. And he said, well, I actually want to go shopping with her. Uh, he was a guy who I don't think liked shopping. I was, I was sure of actually, he didn't like, he wasn't a shopper. And they said, why would you want to shop? And he said, well, I just... I just like being with my wife. And for like high school guys, I was like, what? You want to just hang out with her? It, it seemed like, but that's not a thing you want to do. And he said, yes, but like, I just, there's things I, I don't want to do, but I still like to do them. Like I, because, because her, because I love her. I want to do those things. I remember them kind of having like a, a stare at him like, huh, you, you do things you don't want to do. And it's not because she's going to hold something over him. It's not because he's going to be in trouble. It's not because, well, then at least later then she has to like go watch football with you. It's because he goes, I just like being with her. I think that's one of the sweet things about a marriage is you get to watch the intensity of that, the concentrated moment of that at a wedding when two people are committing to each other. Because in, in a marriage, there is that something changes in you and you might find yourself uh, even wanting to do things. It's no longer just a duty, like I have to do this. But it's a, like, I've committed this person. Something changes in you. A love changes in you towards that person. Today we're in the book of Romans. And Paul is going to use the, the analogy of marriage to kind of explain a truth. Um, and I think he's going to really, he doesn't necessarily just talk about how it changes to want to do things. But he's going to explain it just as a picture of it as an illustration of what has changed in us. And so today I'm excited. We're going to look at how uh, this picture of a marriage uh, gives us a picture of our own state, but also I, uh, uh, we're also going to look at one other kind of illustration of how this changes even like where we are, who, who we are, uh, and even where kind of we live in our life. And so we're in the book of Romans. If you want to uh, crack open your Bibles or open your phones, if you want to read along in Romans, we're going to be Romans 7 today. Uh, and we're in a series of Romans for a while. We're in the second part of it, talking about how do we live then if the gospel is true that we hear in the first part of Romans, that we're sinners, but God has come to rescue us and save us, all of us, what does that look like? Um, and as usual, just a reminder of the resources we have available. If you're new to us, we'd love for you to grab a Romans uh, Bible journal. This has uh, the scripture from Romans and pages to write in. Uh, we have those for you. They're out on tables out there somewhere by the donuts. So we'd love for you to grab that. Let me just hop in here. We're going to be in Romans uh, 7, 1 through 6 today. I'm going to read the passage, and then we're going to take time just to kind of walk, just to walk through it together and see what God has for us today. This is Romans 7, 1 through 6. 
Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but, in her, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we are living in the flesh, our sin, sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code." This might sound similar. The last few weeks, we've been in a section of Romans in 6 that is, is defining something similar. It's saying what we were and then who we are now, how the gospel changes who that is. And so in Romans 6, the first part of that, we get to this great truth of who we are. It says, if grace is so good, if, if God's willing to come and give us this gift to rescue us, and as we sin more, there's more grace, then should we keep sinning? And Paul reminds us, we no, because we're not those people anymore. That the, the gospel of grace actually changes who we are. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. No way. How can we who died to sin still live in it? We've actually died. He used this language that we have actually died and have come alive now in it with a new life. And so this first part in Romans 6 is telling us who we are. And then last week, Aaron walked us through the second part of 6, which reminds us who's uh, we are. Whose are you? But thanks be to God. This is six seventeen through eighteen. But thanks be to God that you were uh, that that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So we've become people who were once slaves obedience to sin, which leads to death, and then Christ has changed us to people who are now slaves. We now belong to a God who is right and righteous, and we're freed and actually get to obey him. And so today in our passage, we're kind of in another area, and I'm looking at this, and we're thinking of it. So where do you live? So who are you? Whose are you? And now where do you live? So we're going to look at this analogy, this picture of marriage, but I also want us to think about where do we actually live now? I think that for me has been very helpful. And so we're just going to start right here at the beginning of seven and walk through this for a little bit uh, together. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. This, this word law comes up. This is a lot in Romans. Um, and at times in Romans, is talking about uh, the people who obey the law, which is the Jewish people that were given the Mosaic law that came down. Uh, if, you, if you remember this story, he came down uh, with Right, with tablets, you might know this, but there's actually a lot of laws. It is a way to live. So he comes down with, this is how God has designed us to live our lives. Uh, and so at this point in Romans, some commentators say maybe he's just talking to Jewish people. At this point, he has defined that like all of us are still actually under this law, if not just the natural law of just looking around, we should be able to know who God is and how he's designed us, or literally the people that were given the law, or, or even the, historically the people who might not have grown up Jewish still would have known that Jewish law. And at this point, Paul has established in Romans, it's kind of all of you. All of you are under this law that came to you, and it points out to you that you do not and cannot obey 
like you think you can. You, you aren't going to follow all the rules. You're not going to live the way God has made you necessarily to live. And so it shows us our sin, which is our sin is just us turning away from the way God has created us, really turning away from God, essentially our creator, and turning to created things. We heard that in Romans 1. And so the law says it shows us that. It's like we took an assessment like the Myers-Briggs, and instead of being like an ENFP, it just comes out that you're a sinner. And no matter who you are, however you take the thing, it always says sinner. And then you're like, why did we take this? It all comes out the same. That'd be a good little money-making thing, I bet. We could start assessments. Uh, but you took it and it says, the law comes and says, hey, let's see if you actually can live up to this thing that you don't need God. You figured it out. And it says, no, because you were made to need God. So the law actually shows it's, like, it's really a gift to us to say, unless we become people who say, well, the law is what gets us to God. It's, it also, we see this in this picture uh, on the Day of Atonement. This is this moment we see in Old Testament where the people of God would gather and they would actually pray and lay the sins of God's people on goats. And they would send one goat off, the scapegoat would run off with the sins as far as can go. It is a symbol of our sins. God forgives us and our, our sins were night. And one goat would actually be killed to, to show, like visually see, to experience, like this is what sin does is it brings death. And so those scapegoats were actually a picture of that, like not only does sin make us isolated and, and run out to the desolate places away, but also sin uh, also brings death. And that the only way to pay for those is to die uh, or to, to be run out. It's this, it's this picture of what sin does over and over again, which should make us go, wow, I need, I need something. I need, I need forgiveness. I need something to fix this. I'm not able to do this. And so Paul here is starting by saying, Friends, do you remember that the law, when in the system of the law, when like when you're in, you have to obey these things or death comes to you, you're dead. That's, that's the option you have because you cannot fulfill these. And so he's reminding us of that because he wants to remind us how, the, where the exit is to that, where the exit door is and that it's this incredible miracle. This grace is this thing that's given us an exit out of this system that we're in. And so he gives a picture of something that most people would understand. He says, for a married uh, woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. And so uh, th this is helpful, I think, in this. This illustration can get confusing because it sort of switches partway through. If you're thinking of the husband as the law, like we, we're dying to the law and then we run to Jesus. This is actually saying there's a system, right? That if you're married, it's not the same as it would have been then, but similar. If you're married, you're legally married, then there's certain laws under it. And if you decide to not be married, there's certain things you have to do to, to break that legal bond. And so it's saying if a woman is married to a man together, they're under this system of the law, and she cannot leave her husband and go to a different man. Otherwise, that's considered adultery, right? She's outside of it. The only way out of this is if her husband were to die. And then within that system, if he dies, then she's allowed to marry another. And so the way out, the big picture of Paul is like, the way out of that is death. Death is the way out of this system of these people committed. And if not, it's adultery. He, he's not really trying to explain to us how marriage works or what your marriage should look like. He's just giving this, hey, here's a picture of this, if you need to better understand what this looks like. And then he goes on. So if you understand that picture, there's people who are married under a system. The only way out is death. 
if her husband dies, she is out of that and she can marry another person and, and form a new marriage. He's saying, this is like what's happening with us. Likewise, my brothers, sisters, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. It's, it's giving us this, he's like saying, remember, you, you were bound and actually earlier, and we know like a, a core principle of the gospel is that we were united and bound to Christ. And when he dies on a cross and suffers, that's our suffering that we deserved. And when he goes in the grave, that's us that he's pulling there with us. And then he comes out of the grave. You know, uh, the actual image of a marriage, if the husband dies, he, he's dead. But in this image, Christ is the husband, pulls us into the grave and dies to get us out, right? Gets us the exit door out of that system of law that brings us death. And then he actually raises us from the dead. And now we've been raised and we're no longer under that law because we paid the price for that sin, that law that we're in. And now we bear fruit for God. This idea that we're married to Jesus. He's the husband who died and he's the husband who raised us from the dead. This idea of Jesus actually being a husband uh, is one, I think it's interesting because it's one that comes up uh, historically. And actually not long ago, I think it was 2012, uh, this woman is Karen King. She's a, a Harvard scholar. She's well known in like comparative study of religion and actually uh, ancient documents. Well, she was able to get this scrap of papyrus that is, uh, uh, they call the gospel of Jesus's wife, which is shocking, right? So this has a, uh, this is just a like, little piece that they say is from a, a part of uh, someone who wrote a gospel account of what Jesus is doing. And in the account, one of the lines mentions Jesus talks, refers to his wife. So he says, to his wife, he says something. And so this is a pretty big deal when this came out, that uh, it was originally tested and it seemed like the papyrus was the right date and the ink was the right time and things at first. She always had a little bit of suspicion. This is an interesting story if you want to look it up. She had a little suspicion. I'm not sure. This seems like too good. Also, that topic is like almost too perfect. I think there's an interview with her where she says like everything seemed like too good, that it made me wonder if it was a forgery. Uh, and... Uh, also, things like the Da Vinci Code mentioned this. There's also a gospel of, I think, uh, Philip. They call it the Gospel of Mary. There's other accounts that have come out of writings. There are, people have claimed that they were from disciples. Most of those have found to be uh, forgeries. Um, they were written a lot longer, way after. But this one, at first, they thought was real, and then eventually they find out this actually is um, also a forgery. Um, it's kind of fascinating, though, like all, all that came out, there's all this uh, academic things came out, all these things as people started talking about, um, did Jesus has a, have a wife? And there was different motivations for why people would create these. Um, but one of them, I think it was interesting, there's an interview with someone and they said, Jesus, uh, Jesus's love was too grand not to share it with a wife that would have been wasted. That was their kind of motivation, like he had to have had a wife. He was just too, like, too perfect of husband material to not have a wife. <laughs> Which I, I kind of, I, I like that because there's something about them knowing who Jesus is. It's like, he just like cared so deeply. He would have been the perfect husband. And, and he was. Throughout scripture, we hear this image. This isn't Paul's first, like, first time understanding. He didn't think of this analogy. Oh, what a cool picture. Maybe what if we thought about Jesus like this? It's throughout scripture we're called God's, bride. 
All, in fact, from kind of the beginning to the end, we're called this bread because we know this picture. This is one of the things that all of us can see around us, this little picture of it in marriages around us. And we can go, whoa, what an incredible picture of a God who pursues his wife in this way, loves his wife in this way, is in this covenant with his wife in this way. And so when Paul says this, I don't think it's, um, I, I know he's seen this throughout scripture, this image of us being united with Christ through his suffering on a cross that we owed and he is united with us and he went with us into the grave. And he also then, we never could have, but rose, right? And he's seated at his throne. In Hebrews we hear, we're actually seated with him on his throne. So we've been connected to him. And so this idea, and Jesus loves so well, he'd be perfect husband material. It's because he is, but to the church, because the picture of marriage isn't so much about, we have a really cool picture of marriage. And then Jesus goes, oh yeah, I wish, I wish I could make something like that. Instead, it's just a little image. We get to bear a little image in our marriages of the greater, better reality of God and his people. It's, I'm thankful that God gives us, he gives us those in images of family, in parenting, he gives us images uh, of all sorts of things on scripture, little things we experience here that can remind us of the bigger, grander reality. And so this is what Paul's getting is he's like saying, don't forget that you were once under this law, which ultimately points out that you're sinful and that that death is coming and someone came to rescue you from that death. And it was Christ, like, like a husband who would die for his wife and then bring her with as he resurrected into this new marriage. Jesus is both husbands, and, and he has brought us into a new life. He's the only one who could do that. Galatians sums it all up uh, wonderfully in Galatians 2. For, though the law, uh, for through the law, I died to the law. So the system I was in was death comes to those who are disobedient, who turn away from God, who are, are treasonous, treasonous against God. It, incredible how God and Jesus goes, well, that is, that's how it was created. God's not going to work outside of that. And so he goes, but there's a way within that I can rescue you. So even within the law, death does come to those who deserve it, but through Christ, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. What a picture. What a beautiful picture. Uh, we have, that we have died. We're not our, the same person. So again, Paul is reminding us, you're not the same person. You ask, so uh, Jesus forgives me. Can I go back to doing what I was doing? And I can let people know that Jesus did that for me. No, because when he does that and you say yes to him and you put faith in him, that changes you. And when each day you wake up and you, you, re, you repent again and turn away from things into him, it continues to change you and we're no longer the same people. We've come alive. And this image of us being united to him throughout scripture happens in a few spots. I love these. These are some of my favorites. This is a passage we read all the time here. So I think I can't, every day I need to read this to remind myself. This is at the end of scripture. This is what will happen one day when <laughs> this mess is cleaned up and, and finally fixed officially and, and finally. Uh, this is a picture of what it looks like, of what uh, our God coming looks like. And listen to this language. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. From the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. All of a sudden, we're in a wedding ceremony. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, the bride of Christ is walking to her husband, who has made a new home for them. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne say, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. That was the law. That's when we lived under law. That's when death used to reign. doesn't exist anymore. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That feels like if you're at a wedding. In that moment, at least, a few moments of a wedding, when they finally meet, they're holding hands, and they're, they're sniffling. I, I give a, a tissue <laughs> to both of them to wipe their eyes and blow their nose because they're just so overwhelmed. It feels like a moment where we forget that there's mourning and crying and pain. It like, there's like a, we get a little blip, a little glimpse into this truly one day, this reality that will come. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the omega and alpha and omega in the beginning and the end. I love this. It is done. There will be a day when it is done. What a good wedding. That will be a really good wedding. Uh, really good wedding. This, this happens in Revelation, but this actually happens way before even Jesus comes. In Isaiah, we hear very similar language, almost language that's describing a moment of a wedding as well. This is from Isaiah 62. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. What a phrase. My delight is in you. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. You picture our God being one who comes to us sinners, broken, and rejoices over us. This is, this is the new marriage that we're in. A God who rejoices over us because of the work that his son has done. It goes on. It, it gives a picture almost of like preparing a wedding. Go through, go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Clear it of stones. Lift a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, this reward is with him and his recompense before him and they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. You shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. From a city that was forsaken and desolate to one who was sought out, sought after, and a city that was not forsaken. This is such a picture of a wedding, right? It's like, let's prepare the wedding, make, make way the Lord and his people are coming together forever. People who now, because of his work, will be called holy people, redeemed people, sought after people, people not forsaken. This is the gospel. So this is in Scripture. What happens between Isaiah and what happens between Isaiah and the, and the Revelation? Jesus comes and under the law dies the death that we deserved under the law to rescue us from that law and now has established us in this covenant, this new relationship with him because we're changed people. Why don't we keep sinning? Because we're not the same people at all. And so Paul goes to the end of this passage here in Romans 7 explains, he starts moving towards what does it look like then? What is the overflow of that? What is the fruit of that? While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, 
So the law uh, says it'd be like um, if, if there was a kid, kid in your house, hypothetically, and it was raining out and that kid was playing with Legos and, uh, and you said, hey, as you walked by, hey, don't go outside. It's raining a lot. You'll get muddy. And then all of a sudden they go, I should probably go outside and play in the rain. <laughs> they had no thought of playing in the rain. They were happy with their Legos. But dad, in all of his wisdom, reminded them that there was rain and sinning to do. And uh, without... It's like it like stirs up in us more sin. While we were living in flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. In that life, we were bearing fruit. We were growing. What were we growing? Death. That's what came of it. But now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. We were held captive under this law, bearing death, and now... We've been released from that, freed from that, so that we can serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We've been freed from this one land to a new land, rescued from it, from one land to another. In a time, I think um, uh, Karl Barth explains it says, we once lived under religion and now we live under grace. We lived under a system where we said, I'm okay if I do this, fill in the blank, I'm okay if this happens. And realizing all those things actually led us to death and now realizing I'm okay because of what Christ has done. He's grabbed a hold of me and went to the grave and has risen and still calls me his. Uh, this is the other part. So let's, other than marriage, I, this, this is a picture for me that has helped a lot. Of, years ago when I was in college, so that was a long time ago now, uh, I got to spend a little bit of time on a study abroad program in, in Accra, Ghana. Um, and most, and I was supposed to go there and then, uh, some things changed. Now that I'm like a little older, I realize uh, something probably just got mixed up. When we got there, they're like, we're here for a month. We want you just to experience Africa. So we'd like you to spend your day experiencing Africa, uh, which I, I think meant like someone didn't plan anything for us. Uh, I'm pretty sure. Uh, and so I got credits in Africology, which was the study of Africa. Which is sweet. And I got to spend, God gave these amazing people to me that I met right away there. And I got to meet all these great people and actually really got to experience it. One of the things I got to do almost every day is go sit at this cafe with some friends that I'd met there and uh, just learn about life and hear about life. And I remember very early on, we're sitting in a cafe and I had went up to get something to drink and I came back down to my seat and I realized they'd given me the wrong amount of money. So they owed me like a few more CDs which probably would have amounted to like eight cents or something. But I was like, oh, they gave me the wrong amount of money. I'm going to go, I'm gonna go up and tell them that you owe me eight cents. <laughs> uh, and the guy I was with, thankfully, his name was Dennis, he grabbed my arm and he said, stop being an American. And he sat me down. And I said, what? I'm like, they don't know I'm American. <laughs> Even though, like, uh, for sure. We had actually we'd actually sewn like Canadian flags on our on our backpacks because our professor was like, "It's nice if they don't know you're American in other places." Uh, but I'm pretty sure they knew I was American, uh, obviously. Uh, and so he said, "Stop being American." And I said, "No, no, no." But but they like wronged me, and I need to get my money. And he said, "How much money is that?" And I said, "I don't know. It's however many CDs. It's probably like eight cents." And he's like, "I'll give you the eight cents. It's not worth it." I said, what? And he goes, you're being so American, you're more worried about your money than you are the people. I said, no, I'm just, I'm making it right. Like, 
they'd want to know and their accounting is going to be off, I'm sure. And he said, here people are more important than money. I know in America money is more important than people. And then I tried to argue with him for a while and I didn't have a real good platform to stand on. Uh, and I was like, yeah, it is. that does one of the things that drives us uh, and, and being right. But it hit me that that one act, right? If I'd walked up there and said, hey, you just gave me some wrong change, probably would have indicated where I was from. The culture I was from, the kind of system that I lived within, because the, that's how like my people worked. My people worked, you owed me some money and I'm going to get that. And even if that means like I break a relationship with this cafe person, which I didn't understand until my friends helped me explain that actually would have meant that would have like hurt their relationship with it, they would have been known as the people who hang out with the American who cares more about his eight cents than the people. It really wasn't even about money at all. It was just like, you're disrespecting them by doing that. I learned all these things <clears throat> that in this place, with these people, there was a different economy of how things worked. Things va were valued in different orders and in different ways, and people lived in a different way. I actually really grew to, to love it a lot. Um, and this is, this is how I want you to, th this is how this works. This is what Paul is telling us here. We, we don't live there anymore. We don't live there. Maybe this helps. I made this cool map. Here's, I also went to school for art, as you can tell. Uh, Africology and art. That's why this is my job. Because our real jobs. Uh, this is what happens, friends. We are in the land of religion. This is, we're okay because we did this. Carl Bart actually says, he defines religion and grace. He says, religion is a life where I'm doing things to God. And then it elicits response from God. It's just like classic good paganism. Like I do stuff that makes God do something. And he said, grace is a place where God has done stuff to us. And then we get to respond out of it. I like that picture. That's a very gospel picture. And so we once lived in the land of religion under the law. The only way out of that was death. We couldn't get on the ferry. We couldn't leave that place to really be free. We were captive there. The only way out was a ticket, and we could not get on the ferry out, the boat to leave that place. But someone came who was willing to die and give us a ticket, and now we've become the united people of grace. Together, under grace, under a different system, under a different economy. I say this to myself, actually, fairly often. I say, you, you're, you're in the economy of grace, Drew when I find myself still living like the place I used to live. I just brainstorm quick uh, the differences in those. If you had to say, hey, I, I'm, from, uh, I'm from Graceland, not in Memphis, but like this land, how is that different from my old land of religion that I lived in? Because each day I kind of have to remind myself, I go, oh yeah, I don't live there anymore. I don't live there. Here's, there's, it's a list, but here's a, the land of religion says, I have to fix every problem. And I'm going to spend a lot of my day fixing, and maybe even everyone else's problems too. And the United People of Grace says, God has fixed all things, or will fix all things. Remember that from Revelation? All things. It's done. One day it will be done, and done right. In the land of religion, my worth or my identity are dependent on me. What I do, as well as those around me, what, what they do and their actions defines exactly who they are. So I have to work really hard to be exactly the person I want to be. And I sometimes work really hard to make sure I'm not like someone else. But in the, in the land of grace, in the economy of grace, my worth and identity are dependent on God. You see how this 
This is me doing something and like telling God, this is who I am now, God, because I did these things. And God's saying, no, you're, you're loved and, and you're not forsaken because of what I have done. My identity is outside myself, which I am so thankful for. Because uh, if it was just on me, I uh, have some things I would not love. I give because I get. So in the land of religion, I do things, I serve. It might even look a lot like when I'm in the land of grace, uh, but I do things because I get things back. There's this economy of like, oh, you helped me, so I better help you. This comes out in really small ways sometimes. Like if, you, if you're ever hanging out with someone and like you say, oh, don't worry about it, I'll pay. And they go, I'll make sure I get you later. And then they're like, I have to. And, then, and you get in a fight over like, that you're like, no, it's fine. And then they have to Venmo you money, Venmo you money or maybe I've done this. <laughs> like, no, I have to pay you because I, we have to somehow be equal. Because sometimes that's because it's like way in my heart. I'm like, I gotta make sure we're equal so they don't owe me anything or I don't owe them anything. But in the land of grace, I give because I was given. We have been given all and more than, we, abundantly more than we could ever ask for or imagine. And because of that, I get to give. Because of that, this is, this is where like, when you, if you talk to Sadie, who just shared about this care portal thing we're doing, this like just bubbles up in her. There's like, a, I have, all I want to do is give and serve because in me, uh, I've been given so much and I can't wait to give others. I don't have to spend my days trying to do things to get things because I've been given everything. And now I get to spend my days giving. Our anger in the land of religion becomes selfish anger. I'm also often angry because I'm not getting my way or someone's interrupting what I'm doing or making me uncomfortable. And my anger in the land of grace is often hopefully righteous anger, right? It's anger because I've seen injustice and I've seen people being treated in a way that isn't how God has called people to be treated. It's different. I decide what's right in the land of religion and God is righteous in the land of grace. I decide who is good in the land of grace. God is the one who makes us good. In the land of religion, we do stuff and God responds. And the other one, God has done so much and we get to respond. He's rescued us and called us his own. And now we get to respond. In the land, as we see in this passage, there is fruit of death and there is righteous, good fruit in the land of grace. Hills and hills of wonderful, tasty fruit instead of dying, desolate fruit in the land of religion. As we end here, I just want to ask some questions. These are questions that are, for me, help me assess, figure out where, where am I landing? Because each day you're going to land in the land of religion. Each day you're going to have moments where you go, whoa, I'm functioning in, in an economy that's about like, I won't do that because you don't do anything for me. Or, or you hurt me and so now you don't get that. I function in that economy often. And so I have to go, Why, where did that come from? And then what does it look like to be kind of changed in that? What does it look like to be people who uh, ask for forgiveness, even when maybe they only brought a little bit of the issue? Let's talk to a friend who just shared this. He said, I had to ask for forgiveness about a situation at work that was mostly not my fault. And I said, I'm sorry, I should not have done this. And he said, the person got like emotional because uh, they like, he said, I think they often are the ones that are the problem. <laughs> And so people don't usually ever, like, bring that to them. And so he said, I had to really pray and be like, God, I need to be gracious. And that grace actually even changed that person. Well, here's some questions. So for myself, I might ask, what makes me sad? 
And then deep down, why am I sad? Is it because I'm living in the land that Christ has rescued me to? Or is it because I'm living in my old land of religion? So for me, uh, death makes me sad. It should make us sad, right? But then what's the hope in that? Is there hope? I actually can still have hope even in the midst of my sadness uh, because we know Christ has overcome that. What, what makes me hate? I hate uh, very evil people. It's one of the few times I think I might use that word is I hate when people really hurt other people and intentionally hurt other people. And if I'm not in the right land, that comes out of a place that goes like, I'd never do that. You are terrible. How could you ever do that? Because I would never, ever do things like that. And I forget how quickly in the land of grace, in the united people of grace, we remember we are sinners who have the capacity for evil, who live lives that lead to death. And if I remember that, remember that I've been rescued and changed, it changes that. It changes, I, I have compassion and grace. I can still hate evil things and go, oh, they, there's still hope there, though. There's still image bearers. Sometimes I wonder what I worry about. Often for me, worry is just not control of the future. It's a battle that I'm having with something that hasn't happened yet. Uh, for me as a parent, often this is for my kids. Or for you, for all you sinners out there who uh, I lay in bed and worry about. I say, oh, I hope they're okay. I hope they're doing the right things. I hope I said the right things so that they will make the right steps so that everything will be okay. Forgetting that there is a God who has shown me he has all things in his hands and it will be okay. And so I get to go, oh, I don't live in the land of religion. I live in a land where God reigns, who has control and is good and one day will make all things right and it'll be done. And lastly, what makes me angry? This one is very convicting often because often it's just because people make me uncomfortable or they're just not being nice to me. I'm just angry because you disrupted my comfort or my peace. Or I wanted to do something and I can't do it because of you. And so now I'm angry about that. Because I lived in a place that was like, I should get stuff because I did stuff. Uh, if I live in that land, then angry, anger should come about. But if I live in a place where, where God, who has come to me as a sinner and rescued me even while I was disobeying even while I was hurtful, even while I was rebelling against him, in all of that and all of his love still responded to me and has rescued me, that changes my anger. It does. But what a great question. What's been making me angry? And where does that come from? It's an opportunity each day to repent, each day to say, I'm going to turn back to God, I'm going to turn back to God, turn back to God. And after many days of that, those prayers are also like, please come back. <laughs> Please come back, because I cannot wait for the day when you make those things right. I'm going to invite our worship team up here so we have opportunity to sing to that God, to worship that God. A few things we do here as we respond. Uh, just a few questions to consider, consider even after those. Have you said yes to Jesus and died to the law? That's, that's what Paul says in your faith. In Galatians, we hear faith in Christ saying, yes, I believe you have come to rescue me. It's not me doing the rescuing. What parts of the law do you need to die to today? Are there parts that you still love to hold on to? Is the law being something that can guide us later as we've been rescued? Is, is, it, is part of it what you think is making you okay? Um, who lives in the grace land with you? Who are those who uh, journey with you in that? And who needs to know there's a way out of the land of the law? Do you know someone's stuck? Probably other than yourself. Uh, 
in that cycle. I, I actually would like to pray. I, uh, we're going to do a few things here we do to respond. We have communion. You don't have to be a member of hope, but you can take communion with us. It's an opportunity to do what Christ has called us to, which is remembering his death and resurrection, which is him taking us to the grave and, and, and raising from the dead and seating himself on his throne. That's what we get to do in communion. Break that and go, wow, you did this with me and, and have rescued me. And so we do that out in the hallways. Um, both sides have have uh, things to partake in that. We also will sing as a response and sing, uh, remind ourselves of this and our neighbors of this. There's people who want to pray for you in the back of the room. They'd love to pray for you. So please take that opportunity. Uh, and you can always give as a response. You can in the app or in the, the box outside. Um, I, re- I rewrote Isaiah 62 has been very encouraging to me uh, this week, uh, just this week. And um, I have actually kind of wrote it again so it speaks to like our, our current gospel moment that because of Jesus, it has changed us. And so I'm actually going to have a stand up for a moment here as we prepare to sing. I would like to read this, just kind of read this over us, declare it over you. It's almost like our, um, if our country, if our new United People of Grace had a song that we sang, I will not sing it. I'll just speak it. But this is like our song. We sing the beginning of our sporting events. Our teams always win. It's magical. I just want to sing this, uh, say this over you, kind of pray this over you as we start our time of singing together, um, just to remind us this is the truth that it is to be in this land that Christ has brought us to. Uh, So let me pray this over us, and then we'll just start. uh, We'll sing to him. Because of Jesus, friends, you are a crown of beauty in in the hand of the Lord. You're a royal jewel in the hand of your God. You shall no more be called forsaken, no more be called desolate, far away, alone. But you shall be called my delight, beloved. And you're with family, wanted, adopted, for the Lord delights in you. For as a young man marries a young woman, our Lord has married us, said yes to us. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God rejoices over you. Make way, prepare the way for the people. Make a way for all to hear. Tell the people the good news. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed over all the earth. Behold, your salvation has come. Behold, his reward is Jesus and your sins are forgiven. Death sentence paid by his son and you shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. You shall be called sought after, a city not forsaken. The Lord is yours and you are his forever and ever. Amen.